Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters, in case you forgot the sound of my voice. And I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. And today on the podcast, housing in the governor's race. This is it. This is, we know, you dedicated listener to the California Housing Crisis Podcast, are a one-issue voter, and that issue, of course, is housing. <laughs> and we're also sure that right now, in your mailbox, you are getting your ballot unsure of what to do, given the one issue that you care about. And we are here to help you make your choice. So Liam will tell you who to vote for at the end of this podcast. <laughs> and Just kidding. Lots of people, right. Um, but we're going to be going through each of the candidates' housing plans, as well as talk about their uh, remarks on housing, uh, their extended remarks on housing at the debate um, Tuesday night, moderated by Chuck Todd. This is it's a huge issue in the governor's race. I'm super, super excited to talk about this. Yeah, no, it's really good because uh, I think we're going to see, you know, and we've talked about this in the, in the past, uh, sort of Jerry Brown, the current governor's reputation on this issue is. is, is Don't preempt that. my point. I have, I have a point later I want to make about this. Don't preempt me. Well, you're uh, always preempting me. <laughs> Listen, just because I'm trying to streamline, um, uh, I our, knew that's what you were going to. You've been preempted. I was having a ministerial approval joke in the back of my head. Let's move on. Um, Liam has a piece breaking down where each of the candidates stand. You can also check out our very beautiful interactive voter guide at Cal Matters, which I would argue is uh, aesthetically and substantively. The best voter guide out there so far on California uh, on the election we're having in June. It's a lovely voter guide. I also highly recommend uh, you taking a look. And your piece was clear and concise, and also lovely. Well, thanks. This, uh, this is this is pleasanter than it was at the beginning. It was, but it's going to devolve very quickly. <laughs> uh, it, to talk about where the gubernatorial candidates stand on housing, as well as just housing broadly in the election, we have two excellent guests. Yeah, so we have uh, my pal uh, from the LA Times, Phil Willon, uh, who has been covering the gubernatorial election for us. And was at the debate on Tuesday night. That's right. And my pal, Laurel Rosenhall, um, who has been covering money and politics here in Sacramento for a long time um, and also came up with the name for our podcast. We have been on break for three weeks, three weeks without a podcast, but we're back, which means the most popular segment in all of housing podcast wonkery is back, which is... The avocado of the Fortnite. And Liam, why don't you tee me up on this one? So you've been doing some work uh, around on this California Dream Project that um, is airing on NPR affiliates all over up and down the state. And so you were just curious, you know, what a certain amount of money could buy you uh, if you were looking for a house uh, all across the state. And so you took a visit to the Bay Area. And Matt, what did you find? So the conceit was we're going to play a little House Hunters California, and we're going to give Matt a fictitious budget of half a million dollars. Okay. And what that gets you in a certain part of San Jose called Willow Glen on a nice tree-lined street uh, a block away from a Safeway. Wow. This sounds like a place I'd want to, I'd want to live. About 20 minutes from Google. Okay. Um, Where I a tech guy that sounds like a, a lovely And you location. look like a tech guy. <laughs> It's the meanest thing you've ever said to me. Hey, be, you know who our listeners are, Liam. <laughs> Tech guys look great. Um, it is a nice neighborhood. Okay. Not, it's not Beverly Hills or La Jolla. What you can get there for half a million. Okay, wait, what, what can you? You can get half of a burned down house. <laughs> so you may have seen this in the news. Um, a house in this particular part of San Jose that literally caught on fire two years ago during a, re- a remodeling job, um, sold, was put on the market for $800,000, sold in six days for $900,000. So wow. I should be clear, you can get a little more than half of a burned down house in San Jose. And I got to visit it, and it was so awesome, dude. It what was it, so awesome. What did it look like? Tell, tell, to Describe it in a way that makes our listener feel like they were staring at a hunk of house. So I highly recommend you Google image this, um, but it looked like the house was left too long in a toaster oven. It was literally charred wood. Huh. Um, they're going to tear it down and build something new on it. The more fascinating part of this, I think, was how completely over it the realtor was 
was she was just like, I don't get why people are so freaked out about this house. Um, and so I asked her about it. So you're going to hear a clip. It totally makes sense to you that oh, yeah. that this would be worth this much money because the market's this insane. And, I have, I have, but But you don't see anything like weirdly symbolic here. I do in my personal life, but um, do I see anything weirdly symbolic? No, but I had several realtors ask me, did it sell for a million? And I said, no. They're like, really? So just if you didn't catch that, other realtors she knew were disappointed that the burned down house didn't sell for a million dollars. Yikes. Yeah. So these types of things happen. I don't know. You see them float up in the news all the time where it's, you know, a porta potty somewhere in the inner Richmond sells for 750 grand or whatever. But when you're actually there and you see it, it does kind of knock home how insane housing prices, particularly in the Bay Area. are. Yeah. 20 minutes from Google, a block from Safeway. Yeah. Great for a tech guy like me. Yeah. A block from Safeway is definitely the most important part of that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Now to the topic du jour, housing in the governor's race. So let's talk about the debate. Um, that happened on Tuesday night, moderated by Chuck Todd, not by Liam Dillon, um, who was on the short list of candidates. That was. Unfortunately, I was was cut. Let's start real simple. What would you make of the debate and the role of housing in the debate? Well, so I I was pretty – I thought it was pretty interesting that the first two questions uh, of the debate were about housing. Yeah, uh, thank you, Chuck for doing that. Uh, on the one hand, like great, interesting, because it shows the centrality of this issue to what people really care about and, and the fact that it is um, such a prominent uh, issue up and down the state. But of course, when, when, when you take take a step back and, and kind of reflect on this, the first half hour of the debate where these two questions were, were only seen in northern and central California. And so the rest of the state did not get the benefit of seeing on, on television the discussion of uh, discussion of housing. So on the one hand, yes, a huge, hugely prominent spot in the debate. On the other hand, well, kind of sidelined to, to the JV part of it, right? So even though the housing segment of the debate only reached certain audiences in California, it still got more airtime than some other high-profile issues, and I think that's noteworthy. So what were they? Housing got more airtime than climate change. Okay. Um, it got more airtime than single payer. Wow. So yeah. Healthcare. All right. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I mean, those are two high profile issues. Absolutely. And housing. I don't want to say dwarfed them, but definitely there was more time spent on it. Yeah. Well, and again, I think it is reflecting the fact that this is an issue that touches touches nearly everybody in California in one way or the other. For for every governor, you have a list of priorities. Uh, for the specific issues and policies you want to address. Um, and housing, I think from a lot of people's perspective, never really rose to the top of Governor Brown's agenda. Um, it seems from my perspective that the next governor doesn't have a choice. And, and I want to get your take on this, that there are certain initiatives and policies that the uh, governor has some discretion on. You know, like, let's go after universal pre-K, right? Let's go after climate change to to a lesser extent, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are certain issues and policies that get foist upon them because right. the problem is so deep and the crisis is that severe. And housing, I think, has reached that point, And that was reflected in the debate last night. Yeah. I mean, the first two questions are, are being about housing has, was fo- were foisted upon them, right? Yes. Um, so I, I think you're right. I mean, when, when you have the median home prices as they are, when you can't buy anything in the Bay Area for less than $800,000, that's not a burned down shack. Um, you, you, you have to make this uh, one of your top priorities, even though, you know, we have seen, um, as we talked about a lot, you know, the approval of housing and the idea of housing from a government perspective is that generally tends to be something that's talked about at the local level. But I think it's gotten to the point where the state uh, can't really ignore and the governor can't really ignore um, the uh, immense impact that state level policies can have in this area. Uh, I would be surprised if we did not see action from the new governor within the first year is that something that? Yeah, what do you think I, of that? I, I, no, I think you're exactly right. Yes. We're going to. Ha- I mean, we are these folks already all already have plans, uh, but I think we're going to see something potentially put into action. I would not be surprised that with a big legislative package, some I agree. sort of summit. But I don't think they can get away with like a year, a year and a half of a task no. force. Um, you know, I think they're going to have to s- see something being pushed through, uh, in one way or another. Uh, on you know, on this issue. Okay, let's get to our number of the fortnight, um, Liam. 
314000 And what's that? That is the average of the annual home building goals for the six major gubernatorial candidates. And put that in context for me. Well, um, the building industry in California began keeping stats in 1954 about how many permits were pulled uh, each year, so how many homes were built uh, each year in the state. We, as a state, have only eclipsed 300,000 twice since 1954. Um, so 314,000. And they were not last year and the year before last no, year. No, the last time was 1986. So so what does this mean, right? Um, what is the fact that we have these... Uh, extremely ambitious, and we'll go one by one as we get to the candidates themselves, uh, home-building goals that for each of the candidates. In my view, this is a really big deal, um, at least symbolically, because I think the argument, again, from my perspective, politically, is over. Everyone agrees, or just about everyone, let me couch it a little bit, agrees that the predominant factor for why California's housing prices uh, are so high, why housing in California is so unaffordable, is that there are not enough houses. And this is not a um, a sort of facile um, or easy to come to or uh, obvious generalization or take facile. This, and this is not this is not a take that has I think been commonly held, especially in Sacramento over the past decade or so. Um, but now you you have every candidate, or just about every candidate, agreeing that housing production is the primary issue. And so that argument, I think, politically is is over. And um, I, I and, th- and and those who argue for that, the sort of supply is king argument, I think they've won. Um, could you remind us what if it if it is not a supply problem, what the other arguments are out there? Yeah. So there's um, and this is what's been predominantly in Sacramento is uh, money. Right. So the problem with the reason why we don't uh, housing is unaffordable in California is that we don't spend enough money subsidizing uh, production for of, of low income homes. Um, and uh, that's been the predominant debate in terms of bringing back money that was lost a number of years ago when when redevelopment, which provided about a billion dollars in housing subsidies each year, went away. And what the focus of legislation has been um, to sort of bring that back. You'll also have, you know, there are a lot of folks, uh, particularly on the left, who argue that the predominant reason why housing is unaffordable is uh, a lack of rent control policies. Um, and and that, you know, while each candidate has their own position on that, that's not sort of the master sort of uh, narrative or dominant take for any of the candidates, even those who, who support greater rent control policy. Let's get to the actual plans. Yes. Uh, and we're going to go in order of where the candidates polled most, rec- most recently for the PPIC poll, which is just me get, being beholden to my former employer. Um, they're a good polling organization as well and do other great work. Um, we are going to start with Gavin Newsom, uh, who in April was in the lead, polling at 26% of all likely voters. Um, Liam, we've had a little bit of fun with Newsom's housing plan in the past. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more in detail of what he proposes? Right. So he uh, has the most aggressive number of any of the candidates. He, he's calling on uh, there being three and a half million new homes um, being built uh, from when he takes office through 2025. So that's an average of 500,000 a year. And again, we, the, t- the most we've ever done in the state going back to 54 is uh, 22,000. Uh, you know, I spoke with um, a bunch of experts in this area who basically called his these numbers in and of themselves pretty unrealistic. Um, and so then this was you know, it references a lot um, in the in the debate. It was up in the debate earlier this week. This is this was discussed, and so the number is really audacious. It's unprecedented, um, and, and you know, but uh, but that's fine in and of itself. The interesting stuff, of course, is how he plans to get kind of from A to B. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what he's talking about is, in terms of low income subsidies, he wants to do a five fold increase in the state tax credit that we currently have to help finance uh, low-income housing. Uh, he also wants to, to sort of eliminate some of the regulations and restrictions that he says makes it difficult for developers to produce middle-income homes. Um, but uh, And how specific is he on those uh, regulations So that's the thing. I, I mean, we're all – he's all talking about sort of saying the kind of high-level things that, uh, you know, my reporting, your reporting has identified.
identified as being problematic. Um, this three and a half million number didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a, a study produced by McKinsey Institute in 2016. Uh, they're a private think tank. Who, they're the ones who put this number out there. And so they have particular policy ideas. You know, you reward cities financially with more greater share of tax revenue if they approve housing. Those that don't, you you know, potentially move move to a um, sort of a regional approval process for the most problematic jurisdictions. Newsom and others talk about uh, reforming the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, which is the primary environmental law governing development, often sort of blamed for holding up projects and lawsuits potentially Mm -hmm. being frivolous, et cetera. Right. So he talks at a high level about doing all of these things. But the level of detail um, is at this point not really there um, to really show voters how he would get from A to B. And it sort of has to be to do something as radical as he as he is suggesting. What was interesting was Newsom visited the Cal Matters office uh, for an editorial interview, um, and I asked him to get to your goals. Do you need to change Prop 13? And he basically said, "No, I don't think I need to get rid of Prop 13." And there are other ways of achieving these goals, but he's open to as part of a broader tax reform plan to changing Prop 13. Well, I, again, like, like, and, and I understand where these guys are coming from. These candidates are coming from, like, I, they want to throw out, you know, put out um, uh, exactly what they're going to do to create opposition potentially for a plan that they haven't quite developed or something that would be part of a larger package of things. Yes. But, uh, you know, my stance is unless and until, you know, we see what they actually want to do. And it, 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 then, then, okay, you say what you want, but uh, you gotta gotta put some gotta put some steak on the the grill. Is that a thing? You gotta put. I some, don't think so. Okay. How about you gotta put some meat on the bones? There you go. There we go. There you so, go. So yeah. So uh, we'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it. So we talked about his production goals. Let's talk about um, his attitudes on rent control. So uh, as we mentioned, there's a big, big ballot initiative uh, that would repeal the Costa-Hawkins law, which is the law in place now prohibiting cities from expanding rent control, um, their rent control policies um, on predominantly on newer properties, properties after 95 or in a lot of cases in bigger cities around the state much earlier than that. Uh, so, you know, uh, I asked him, um, his campaign, whether he's going to vote for that uh, or not. And the answer was no. Um, and now he says that uh, he believes that the law could be amended to allow for sort of changes that would add for certain renter protections, um, but he doesn't support repealing it entirely. Let's just have competing uh, <laughs> tidbits of our own interactions with the candidates. That sounds perfect. We also, I asked about rent control, um, and his hang-up when you probed and probe was on the vacancy decontrol issue, which is, again, if the tenant leaves a unit, um, whether the landlord can increase rents to market rate. That is here front runner, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, let's go to John Cox. So John Cox, a Republican, uh, a businessman, uh, actually a housing developer himself. His housing production goal is three, 300000 a year. Uh, so not quite uh, Newsomian news, news levels, um, but still very high, something that we've only only happened twice since the mid-50s. Um, so, uh, you know, there was this debate uh, or sort of forum uh, a few months ago put on by Housing California um, that looked at that where each of the candidates were interviewed about their, their sort of housing ideas. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. This is a room full of affordable housing developers, essentially, right? And so uh, Cox, in typical re- Republican um, fashion, started off by saying, you know, a real big problem is we have these union wage requirements on housing production and that raises developers' costs and that's bad. And there are people in the room clapping saying, yeah, yeah, great. Finally, someone speaks to us. And then about five minutes later, he says, and Cox says, you know what's really bad is these subsidies. We shouldn't be giving subsidies to help build housing production. And you can hear people, right? And so it was very funny to watch the audience of low-income housing developers uh, change their reaction to what John Cox was proposing. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much it. It's a very classic sort of Republican point of view. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think with him, um, he's against um, the idea of, uh, of housing subsidy. Uh, he also wants to reduce regulation, talks about repealing uh, CEQA uh, and replacing it with a sort of a less onerous um, uh, uh, measure. Um, and that's his sort of primary take. What is the likelihood that if we had a Republican governor, we could actually repeal CEQA? Uh, Slim to none. I think that's an important 
important point. Yeah. And on the rent control issue, Cox, not a fan of rent control, opposes the Costa Hawkins repeal. Right. He, his argument is any form of price controls would uh, chill investment in home building. Yes. Okay, let's turn to Antonio Villaraigosa, former mayor of L.A., and talk about his housing plan. So, yeah, so he's a Democrat uh, like Gavin Newsom, uh, and he also has a housing plan that's pretty similar to Gavin Newsom with respect, to, at the very least, to the housing production goal. Um, uh, Villaraigosa is slightly less than Newsom's is. So instead of 500000 a year, he's talking about 439000 a year, which is uh, still a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of new housing. Um, and so he also, like Newsom, doesn't have kind of the specifics uh, in place to uh, say how he's going to get from A to B either, although he does emphasize a few things differently. Um, he uh, emphasizes very much bringing back uh, redevelopment. Um, it complains about how when he was mayor of L.A. that was taken away and how horrible a decision that was. And so that's one thing. Uh, he's also talking about um, setting up a $10 billion, which is a very big number, uh, loan fund to help homeowners sort of set up these um, backyard uh, garage units or second units or ADUs, they're called. Granny flats. Granny flats, all the words, um, to have these sort of second homes in their in their backyards, yeah. uh, which is a common sort of supply side idea that uh, people like because it's considered unobtrusive or less obtrusive potentially than building new uh, new units entirely. Yeah, else. kind of a backdoor solution to solving the housing crisis. Backdoor in your backyard. Nice, nicely done. Yes. Uh, also, uh, like Gavin Newsom, uh, does not support the full repeal of Costa Hawkins. So yeah, so he's going to vote no. He's going to uh, vote no on the on, initiative on, on in November. Initiative in November, but, and was yeah. actually in the state legislature when Costa Hawkins passed and did not vote for it yeah. initially. Right. So he uses that to show that he has a nuanced perspective yes. on this issue. And he talks about using uh, Costa Hawkins changes as a bargaining chip uh, as part of a larger housing discussion. And very quickly on that, let's so he's not the he's the one that has most explicitly said that when yes. he gets asked about this. I want to use it as a negotiating tactic. Um if this passes in the fall, how does that impact not only his ability, but other candidates' ability to use rent control as a negotiating tactic in some type of broader housing legislation? Well, it's completely out of their hands at that point. Um, you know, it's, it's the whole point of the initiative is to let localities do what they want, cities and counties do what they want. And so that's out of the state, out of the state's control. So However, is it completely uh, yeah. out of the state's control? Because it's not a constitutional amendment, right? No, no, I mean, I guess in theory, uh, a legislature and the governor could uh, repass a different law. It would be tough. It would be tough given the sort of the voter mandate that was that was just had. Now, that said, it's not like there are not all other uh, sort of renter, big renter laws, uh, the Ellis Act in particular. Um, that's the law that, that governs uh, the conversion of rent control properties to condominiums, um, allows the, the demolition of them. Let's yeah. move now to uh, Travis Allen, Republican Assembly member from Huntington Beach. So Travis Allen, like John Cox, not a fan regulations, not a fan of uh, money to subsidize housing. Um, uh, to me, the most sort of uh, uh, biggest idea, I guess, if you will, um, if you want to call it that, uh, in the housing space is his homelessness plan, um, which involves uh, you know restarting um, state-run mental health institutions, uh, which, again, going back to the, the housing conference I referenced earlier when he mentioned this from the stage, a bunch of a nonprofit affordable housing developers, there was audible oohs and hisses and boos uh, about this idea because there are severe concerns among homeless advocates that could potentially um, sort of warehouse, criminalize um, their vulnerable populations. Between Cox and Allen... Um, both have expressed hesitancy about putting new inroads on local control of housing decisions. But between them, which do you think comes down more on the side of, in some instances, the state has to get in there and force cities to build? Uh, I think Cox. I would that. agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, it, it, you know, Alan, um, 
uh, well, Alan's talking about removing state regulations to the point that we would be able to build uh, in the desert. You know, he talks about trucking water to the desert so we could build houses there. And on the one hand, like like he's that's sort of a and I say extreme, not in a pejorative sense, but but an extreme sort of idea that, um, look, the primary problem that we have is um, not enough houses. And so we should build them wherever we can. And, and so that's one version of the argument um, that uh, that that you could sort of make is uh, sort of the, the sort of the extreme version of that, which is we need housing supply. Let's build houses everywhere and that'll get the cost down. Right. Um, so that ignores potentially some environmental concerns for sure. Uh, but that that that's certainly an intellectually consistent argument that he's making. Uh, let's move on to. And he's also like John Cox, doesn't like rent control. Um, oh, yes. So, yes. Sorry. Almost, yes. Almost goes without saying, but nah, going to vote no. Let's move on to uh, John Chung. So John Chung is the state treasurer, um, and he uh, sort of has a different tact, I think, than all the rest of uh, the major gubernatorial candidates in terms of his housing production goal is not for housing units um, overall, uh, but for simply for subsidized um, uh, housing production. Uh, And so he uh, uh, and he would argue that, like, look, as the governor the best thing or the thing that I could be held accountable for is actual um, low income production because that involves state funding. And I don't have any control over the market rate developers. I have much more control over the, the, the money that gets funneled in this area. And so um, he wants um, to sort of finance or help finance roughly 145,000 uh, homes for low and moderate income Californians. And how's he going to pay for that? Yeah. So he wants a, a $9 billion bond measure um, to go on, on the ballot, a future ballot, which is an order of magnitude higher than the $4 billion measure that he hopes passes on the, it's already on the ballot in November. Yeah. Um, he also wants to bring back uh, redevelopment and use those, um, use that funding. Um, uh, also pitches a system that they have in New York right now, which involves property tax breaks for developers who uh, agreed to set aside a portion of their units and their projects for low-income residents. And so lots of different sort of money ways um, that he wants to address this problem. And uh, when he visited with Cal Matters, it was, it was actually a Pretty interesting. Um, out of all of the Democratic candidates that we spoke with, probably the um, most defensive of local control for housing. And finally, um, let's move on to Delaney Easton, former superintendent of education. Yeah. So her uh, housing production goal is 250000 a year. She's very pointed at being critical of uh, Newsom Villaraigosa for those numbers being too high. So uh, real quickly, sorry, uh, Chung uh, also has reservations about repealing Costa Hawkins. That's right. Uh, his position is similar to um, Newsom Newsom's and Villaraigosa. Yeah, so okay. bargaining chip, et cetera, that sort of thing. So yes, back to to Easton, um, 250,000 uh, homes a year. She's very critical of the others for being unrealistic, but of course, even to Liam 000, says with a smile. Yeah, 250,000 is uh, also a very large number. We haven't reached that level in 30 years either, uh, so a big deal. Uh, and worth mentioning, I think we forgot Travis Allen's housing production number. 250,000 a year like Easton. So they share that goal, but where they're very different is where, that- Where are Travis Allen and Delaney <laughs> Easton very different, Liam? Where they're very different is that she, in a number of areas, but in this, in this area in particular, she wants to uh, uh, ensure uh, housing production near transit areas, uh, unlike uh, Allen, who's, again, for all the sprawl. So um, that, um, Easton has a couple other interesting ideas. Um, one on homelessness. Uh, she is uh, planning to, if she were elected, planning to declare a state of emergency on homelessness. And so I asked her campaign, so what does that mean? Like, is that just a, a paper declaration or what can you do with the state of emergency that you couldn't necessarily do in other contexts? She said, well, we believe uh, that a state of emergency will allow us to waive certain local zoning rules so that we can ensure that, uh, you know, a homeless housing uh, can get built quickly. Interesting. Did you call lawyers about that to see if, because that seemed like something that would be, uh, maybe a few cities in Orange County would immediately sue about. Well, uh, we'll have to see. Uh, so that's that's her perspective, point of view. Uh, we haven't gotten to the lawyering phase yet. Maybe that's if she makes in the runoff, that's a great question uh, for so, us to have. So... Yeah. Uh, and Delaney Easton, the only Democratic candidate to support the complete repeal of Costa Hawkins. Uh, only of only of the major candidates yes. entirely. Yes, yes. To support the repeal of Costa Hawkins. She also has gone so far as to say that she wants some major changes to the Ellis Act uh, as well. Um, and so uh, that's a really interesting perspective. It certainly sets her apart from uh, her competitors. Um, and we saw a little bit of that at the debate. 
Uh, all right, that is um, a quick and dirty, yet still um, impressively comprehensive uh, wrap up of the uh, candidates for governor and their various housing platforms. Let me ask you this, Liam Dillon. Do any of these numbers matter? Really, though? Do any of these numbers matter? So, uh, short answer, yes. Um, you know, we've talked, I think, on the previous podcast of when we looked about Newsom and Viragos's numbers. Are the numbers so outrageous that they're sort of just kind of there, like uh, talking points, like we're going to end homelessness and that sort of thing. And and I think um, I think they do num they they, they do matter uh, because I think that they're a way to hold these folks accountable for doing something big on housing. One, so we talked at the top of the podcast about the argument changing. Um, that there's agreement now um, that sort of housing supply is a predominant issue when it comes to affordability, which I think should color whatever solution or proposal that they put forward, A. And B, um, it's good, the number of beings being so large will require them to, in my view, come up with a, a large policy uh, that aims to meet that, or else it'll become very obvious very quickly that their goal is uh, very much a, a, uh, a number on a piece of paper. Fundamentally, when it comes to voters and voters holding um, their political leaders accountable, they're going to be deciding based on price point. Even if we reach some of those goals, price points may not come down. Exactly. So that may even be a, a greater danger, which is let's say we do get to, you know, 200,000 units, which would be very impressive. Right. Does that mean rents are going to go down in the Bay Area, L.A. and San Diego? I don't eh? know. I don't know. Eh, they, you might, know they, they might not. Exactly. And it's hard to make the argument, as we've seen covering this issue before, well, it would be worse. That is a very tough argument, especially when it comes to housing. Okay. Let's get to the interviews. So we're here with uh, our pals, uh, Laura Rosenhall from CalMatters and Phil Willon from the LA Times. Thank you so much. Happy great to be here. To, yeah, great to be here with such fine people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Phil. You're welcome. <laughs> What's interesting to, to us, because we aren't sort of day in and day out covering covering this covering this election, uh, I'm just curious, first of all, um, how much does housing kind of rate, either in terms of what you've been hearing from the candidates or what you've been hearing from people as you've been talking to them about what they want to see out of the next governor? Uh, well, it is one of many of the issues that they hit on uh, consistently. So in a way, it's become kind of white noise because yeah. they, they talk at a really kind of uh, satellite level about the issue and the problems people face are like paying the rent this month or trying to buy a house. And they're talking about 10-year plans and, you know, a gobs of money, three hundred you know, $350 million or how many new units they want to build? 3.5 right, new yeah. units. Yeah. And it's just kind of – it really does not connect to people's daily lives. I'm when I was, uh, I drove up and down the state uh, just talking to people about what's on their minds. And, you know, some of the obvious places it was an issue. On, on all the uh, urban places in, like, Santa Cruz and you go to San Diego or L.A., you go places like the Central Valley, it's really not high on the list, even though it's a concern. Huh. Uh, and what what do you think the difference is? Or, wh or why did people say that? Or, or rather, what were people in Central Valley more concerned about than they were about uh, More about uh, making a living and job. I mean, yeah. so I think, I mean, there's, it's basically cheaper housing, obviously, in the Central Valley. Um, and uh, and even places like the Inland Empire, it's more affordable than, let's say, you know, you know, west side of L.A. or anything like that. So they're talking more about just basic jobs or commuting or the gas tax or uh, things like that. Um, both of you watched the debate on Tuesday night. I'm curious whether any of the candidates stood out um, to you on housing specifically. Let's let's start with you, Laurel. You know, I noticed that Delaney Easton was kind of the only one who went there with the um, rent control, repealing the limits on rent control, Costa Hawkins. Um, so that stuck out. And then I noticed that, um, you know, Antonio Villaraigosa and Gavin Newsom, who are supposed to be the arch rivals in this race, they're both Democrats. One's the former mayor of San Francisco. The other is the former mayor of Los Angeles. Um, they're both trying to kind of get into the top two with these different strategies, political strategies. They were completely on the same page on the housing issue, you know, and and Villaraigosa even said, I'm with Gavin on right. this one yeah, in terms right. of the, you know, how many new homes to build. So, um, so 
that those were kind of the most remarkable things to me on on on, on the housing issue. Did it did it take either of you by surprise that this was the very first question, or did you guys think, yeah, this is right? Because it, no. it took us, it took me by surprise. Yeah. I but I'll speak for Liam. It also took uh-huh. Liam by surprise. <laughs> No, I mean, the format of the debate was the first 30 minutes they were going to talk about issues that are relevant to the Bay Area. So when I heard that, well, I mean, of course, affordable housing. I mean, you think about, you know, San Jose and the Silicon Valley, San Francisco. I thought it would be one of the first things that came up. Same with homelessness. I mean, and they both were like a one-two punch. Yeah. So I wasn't really surprised about that. And I really, to be honest, wasn't really impressed with a lot of the answers. No one really, you know, jumped off the page to to really wow anyone i don't think i don't know what the impression you guys had but it was it was the same stuff i i've i've been hearing and they've been saying and it probably had the same impact on the people listening which was nil what what would have wowed you uh well if someone admitted they didn't really know uh, how to solve the problem because it's because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a state problem i mean it, it's, it's on all levels of government i mean there's a lot of layers to it and you know the thing that that frustrates me so much on, on when covering politics is all these promises are made about, you know, fixing Prop 13 or getting hundreds of millions of dollars in bond money or, you know, uh, jiggering CEQA or whatever, the environmental regulations to make everything a lot easier. And it's just like, you know, all of that has not been done in 10, 20 years because there's a reason for that. I mean, because it's it's hard and there's natural forces and natural enemies against doing that. And, but, you know, that never comes up. So no one ever kind of gut checks them. I, I felt like the way the question was posed was actually very effective because the um, reporter from NBC there in the Bay Area, he talked about kind of when he leaves his own home every morning that there's the main road near his house has all of these RVs lining. You know, he's in the in the Silicon Valley and there's all these RVs lined up on the main roads that people are living in. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I thought that asking the question that way was, um, you know, a good kind of on the ground approach for the reporter um you know it was it it showed that his connection to the community but you're you're right the the candidates went straight to their talking points for you know their their plan their solution and for those of us who have been tuned in we've heard it before but maybe the viewers i mean a lot of people in california have not been paying attention to this race why do you think that that why do you think that is i mean obviously we have a ton of problems in california right um so why don't you think that the race has gotten the amount of attention that um, one might expect, or maybe we all expect, or at least I expected, when the race is beginning. Open seat, governor, fifth largest economy in the world, right? Uh, why aren't people paying, paying as much attention? Well, I, I just think people have a limited bandwidth for political news, and Donald Trump's taking it all up exactly. in Washington, D.C. I mean, think about it. I mean, that blows all the circuits every day. I mean, there's four major three or four major stories and it's just hard to get traction out here i completely agree so phil as you were traipsing around the state um were there any housing stories that you heard that made you go i can't believe this uh nothing that really nothing that really uh uh nothing like that i mean i I ran into one guy who was um handicapped he was wheelchair bound in santa cruz and uh he'd been waiting I guess eight years for a Section 8 voucher, and he finally got it, um, but his apartment where he lives now doesn't take it. They don't accept it. So now he has to move, and he's in a wheelchair, and he has to get wheelchair accessible, and he needs people to help him out. And so he was just like, you know, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And he had a pretty good life. I mean, the guy, you know, he's had he broke his neck when he was 17 riding a motorcycle, and he's been in a wheelchair for decades. And uh, it just t- it just kind of hits home about how critical uh, the proper housing can be, and that fact that there's not a huge supply for people in his situation, or even for Section Eight uh, people on Section Eight. Um, do you think anyone is going to make their vote based off these candidates' housing plans, as opposed to let's say single pair? Anyone? Sure, maybe like <laughs> some people will. I mean, yeah, 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 your your audience of devoted listeners, you know, the people who are really way up in it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think for your average Californian, the differences are 
strong enough to be a deciding factor if you are not a wonk who's really up on the details of, of and the implications of these different approaches. I think for your average Californian, they'll hear like, um, you know, there's other things that matter more, like who's a Republican and who's a Democrat, or, you know, if they... I don't know, public education is another uh, issue that can divide Democrats, you know, whether they're sort of an education reform charter school type believer or a more traditional public school teacher union supporter. So, I mean, I think that there are a bunch of issues in California that, you know, you have a segment of the population who are a single issue voter, and that's the one thing that they really care about. And but for your general population, no, I don't. I don't think like for overwhelming numbers of people that that's going to be a deciding factor. No, I, I don't either. I mean, <laughs> this, there's so many major um, issues facing people now that I don't. I don't think this is up there. I, I mean, and it's not just. It's not because it's not important to people, but I think it's realistically, what is the governor going to do uh, in the near future, especially? I mean, like I said, some of the plans people have been talking about are. Are years out. I mean, that's not going to that's not going to impact my life in the next five years, or mm-hmm. or a average voter's life in the next five years. And even the Republicans, so they want to, you know, they want to get rid of all the regulations, make things easier. Travis Allen wants everyone to have a front and backyard and a white picket fence. Right. You know, okay, sounds fine. lovely. You can, yeah, you can <laughs> put that up in Barstow or something. I don't right. know where you're going to go with that. But I mean, like I said, I, and it takes time to build a house. I mean, exactly. and, yeah. uh, for a builder to get financing. So real. I mean, I think people kind of realize that this is just kind of political chatter in a lot of ways and people are just kind of staking out you know what their what their the candidates are staking out what their political ideology is as kind of a marker but you know I don't think people expect things to happen fast. It also I do. <laughs> if my rent doesn't drop in half in the next three years. Recall. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but don't you think also sort of where we are in the election year is also another piece of this, right? Like we're going into the primary, we have this wide open, you know, field, lots of candidates, multiple parties. We're having a nonpartisan primary. A lot of people don't totally understand that. Um, and so the campaign is going to come into much sharper focus after the election in June when we know who the two candidates are that everyone will be deciding between in in November. And so, you know, it's possible. So, that's, so yeah. that's interesting. So, like, let's say it's a Newsom v. Ragosa runoff. Do you anticipate, like, housing policy differences could be one of the... I mean, I think in that case, they'll be like really working to define themselves from each other. And so far, they've separated most um, notably on health care and on public education. And so far, their housing plans are not that different. But if they are together in the, in the runoff, do they have to then, or in the general, do they have to distinguish themselves on that front? They, they might be forced to. So, so Laurel, you cover influence and lobbying and money. Uh, so, where's the housing money going? So, I looked into that, and it's right now. There's not. Um, it's not the right now. The big interest groups are not spending huge amounts of money. Um, the Realtors Association, which can be an enormous player in California politics and very influential, um, they've held off. They haven't made any contributions. They're um, and legislative races, they can be, you know, game changers with their outside independent spending, also known by some as super PACs. Um, haven't done a dollar yet in the governor's race on that. So um, I called up a, a lobbyist I know over there and um, asked what was going on. And he basically said, yeah, we're not jumping in just yet. We're keeping a close eye on it. So um, what that tells me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that tells me is like, we're wait, waiting to see what happens in June, and so they're they're not um, you know they're they're not jumping in at this point. Um, as far as donations directly to the candidates, you know there are some um, real estate investors who have made large dollar donations to the candidates individually, but um, I'm not seeing like a, a specific pattern of you know oh all of the. You know, commercial real estate folks are lining up behind one person. It seems to be more like who do the candidates have relationships with? Both of you are veterans of Sacramento to to some extent. How does housing in this election kind of compare to 
housing in previous elections. Four years ago, there was a Republican challenging Jerry Brown's reelection in 2014. It wasn't, you know, a very um, contentious race because Jerry Brown was running for reelection. There were no Democratic challengers. And with the way the um, voter registration is in California, it's just the likelihood of a Republican really winning was pretty small. But um, he did... This is uh, Neil Kashkari. Yes, yeah. thank you. His name is Neil Kashkari. He's kind of a moderate Republican whose background had been in as an investment banker, and he had worked um, in the George W. Bush administration. And he he did kind of a publicity stunt where um, he went like undercover and went and pretended to be homeless and spent a week in Fresno um, looking for a job. And then he and he had like a video crew filming him and made a video about it. And then, of course, you know, did his big reveal at the end and kind of went public and talked about it. And um, I think the thing that is noteworthy and reflecting on that that now is that his emphasis was on the jobs part of the experience, not the homeless part of the experience. And so, you know, the stunt was he pretended to be a homeless guy who just showed up in Fresno, just got off a bus and needed to find a job in order to kind of get on his feet. Um, But the messaging that he did around that was all about, you know, the economic situation is too hard. There's not enough jobs. People can't find jobs. You know, it's too hard to get a job. And so that was really the point that he was trying to make was much more about the economy, the economy and not so much about a lack of housing. And so just kind of thinking about that stunt, you know, with today's landscape, like we've had this economic recovery and yet we've got, you know, so many people living on the streets or so many people can't afford, you know, the type of housing that their family really needs. And so um, it would be like probably a different stunt today. <laughs> Although if you had to choose a candidate to pretend to be homeless, <laughs> which one would you choose? Which Laurel? one would you choose? <laughs> <laughs> um, so both of you guys read housing stories. What's missing from housing coverage? What- uh, Laurel, take that one. <laughs> I wasn't exactly prepared to think of the question in that way. I What I feel like I've noticed is, you know, there is an increase in attention by the media um, on the housing issue. And I do think for a long time, housing was covered in... Um, a boostery way for an audience that was presumed to be a homeowner audience. So the stories would kind of have this every time home values went up, you know, there was a little bit of this sheen of excitement, right? Like that it was, this was sort of collectively a good thing. Um, And that's a generalization, of course, to put it that way. But that was kind of my um, takeaway for for many years. Um, Now I feel like the narrative is changing. And even though there continue to be stories about rising prices, um, there's definitely, you know, a bigger picture of kind of like, that's not just a good thing, because there's so many people who can't even get into a house to begin with. Yeah. And the other thing too, I mean, and you guys have done this. um, But the thing that concerns me the most is, is the need for accountability because they're talking about they're talking about you know bond money raising tons of, of bond money for affordable housing um, they're talking about bringing back redevelopment areas and redevelopment money and that's all good that's all good but people forget that uh, redevelopment money was just being misspent left and right. I mean, they were building golf golf courses right. all over the place and it was it was mermaid based, bars uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah mermaid bars yeah. so I mean. Uh, with this big pot of money, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of sharks out there trying to get a piece of it. So that's the thing that has me most concerned. And that's and the solutions. Most of the solutions they're talking about has to do with money, raising money, raising taking a piece of the property tax or or whatever. So I'd like to see uh, some accountability in the future. I guess as it progresses. I mean, because right now, obviously, the redevelopments are are uh, not a big factor. So. But like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm always concerned about uh, politicians overpromising about what they can do. And especially we're kind of like in the ice cream truck stage of the of the election where 
Uh, you know, I, mean, I like you, that. You hear the music, you know, and the possibilities, you know. You look at the truck. There's all these things you can want. And, and the ice cream man's there saying whatever Here's you want. Here's 500,000 homes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you can have this or that or, the, you know, the chocolate sundae or whatever. And only toward the end you figure out how much it's going to cost. And you realize you can't buy the whole truck. And so we got to figure out, you know, what ice cream bar you want, in other words. So I just <laughs> wanted to quickly uh, check in on this. Uh, we were talking earlier in the podcast um, you know, I predicted that like within the first year of whoever's governor, they're going to have to push some type of housing plan. And I just wanted to kind of check that with you guys and see whether you agree with that or does that sound, nah, they don't really have to do it, that. I think it depends. I mean, uh, if I mean they have to if they have one big thing, will it be health care? Will it be single payer? I mean, that's a heavy lift. And that's a pretty sexy topic uh, for the voters, more so than housing, I think. I don't know what you think. I, you know, I, I think if it's if it's Gavin Newsom, I heard him talking, not at the debate, but in other conversations about kind of doing a lot of different policy things through some kind of tax overhaul or kind of getting everyone together to really talk about changing the state's tax structure. So would that be, you know, he talked about sort of doing health care through, you know, adjusting different sources of tax revenue and different rates. I mean, would, you know, adjusting Prop 13 and other things kind of come into doing something on housing? It, it It's conceivable, but it's so complicated and right. huge. It would, I mean, seem hard to pull off in year one. If you want to have in year one something really tangible, it's probably not going to be like a huge complicated thing that could yeah. take tons of political capital. I'm thinking, they're thinking springboard to the White House or vice presidency or something like that. I mean, these are all very ambitious huh. politicians. Mm -hmm. So they're going to want to leave a mark and they got two years to do it. Interesting. So just, <laughs> just to clarify on that, um, you're, you're saying something like universal health care would set you up better nationally than something like comprehensive housing legislation. Yes, uh, that's what I'm saying. All right. Thoughts. I may, be, <laughs> no. I, may, I may be totally wrong. No, but. I mean, but like it's a thing, you know, to your point, like yeah. you could point to that saying, yeah. I did universal housing legislation and, you know, I updated transit-oriented development standards <laughs> near the expo line in Los Angeles where now you can build three dwelling units per acre. Like, And we'll see the results of that well, in five to ten years. years yeah. And it's just like, you're right, that's not going to be on a billboard. One, you know? thing, that, one thing that could, though, is, is homelessness mm -hmm. and addiction. Uh, I mean, that would be another thing that you could sell nationwide, I think. And you could be a Democrat or Republican and sell that, I think. But fixing it, it's hard. Right. I mean, yeah, none of these things are easy to do. So that's why. That's, I, don't, I don't think they can do multiple things at once. And there's a lot. I mean, the, I mean, the housing kind of suffers the same um, fate as, like, pension reform. You know, you know who's going to campaign for president on pension reform? So on that, <laughs> on that on that bleak note, uh, thank you both for taking the time to talk with us. Happy to do it. Great being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California uh, Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin with Cal Matters. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. And I'm Liam Dillon, LA Times, and my Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. And this is a good time to remind you that uh, you can reach us there. Um, we'd be more than happy to answer questions about the candidate's um, housing policy uh, or how housing has played in the gubernatorial uh, race. Um, so talk to us on Twitter. Uh, please. And um, if you'd like to watch some of the candidate interviews that we've done at CalMatters, you can find clips of them at calmatters.org if you want to watch the Full unedited interviews, which include um, the candidates' attitudes on SB 827. You can go to our YouTube channel. There's some good stuff in there. Thank you. Thanks.